Brene Brown, who researches and writes about shame, tells us about the shame spiral. Shame makes us want to keep it and its causes secret. And in turn, the secrecy deepens our sense of shame. The treatment is therefore to bring shame out into the light. So easy to say, so hard to do. Shame in a family may be more subtle and complex and the secrets can be buried for generations, but it yields to the same treatment. Every family has its secrets. The child born to an unwed mother and adopted outside the family. The man who one day knocked on the family's door and said he was the son of one of the men of the family, never before acknowledged. The suicide, the bulimia, the addiction, the nervous breakdown, otherwise known as hospitalization for mental illness, the uncle who groped, and the mother who hit. And again and again, the accompanying whisper, don't tell anyone. I've known families that concealed the fact that one of the parents had been married before. Why was this a secret? Who knows? I've known families with a suspected murder that dominated the newspapers for weeks, but where children a generation later can grow up never hearing about it. As long as people do things they're ashamed of, there will be family secrets. The only way a family could ever be exempt from this burden of secrets would be if it stopped making them secret. That means telling a different story. If we don't, <clears throat> family patterns continue to be governed by stories that are barely even known. Parents pass on to children lessons absorbed from their particular family dramas, an outsized fear of sex, difficulty asserting oneself, a tendency when under stress to turn to some kind of self-medication, alcohol, other drugs, overwork, pornography. We can reenact the ways of our parents and grandparents without even knowing what they are. And the more wrapped in secrecy they are, the less likely we are to make conscious decisions about what we do and don't want to carry forward from the past. In her sermon two weeks ago, Reverend Millie Phillips spoke about our attitudes towards our ancestors, hopes that we will discover something about them that inspires pride, such as that they were abolitionists, fears that we will discover something about them that causes shame, such as that they enslaved people. It is strange but true that we do feel both pride and shame in our association with people who were long dead before we were born. I have one and only one mildly famous ancestor. When my great aunt researched our genealogy, she discovered that one of our antecedents was, one, was none other than Captain James Cook. In his day, which was the 18th century, to the British people, he was a hero. 
boldly exploring and mapping savage lands from Newfoundland to New Zealand. He mapped much of the Pacific in a time that it was supposedly uncharted, read unfamiliar to Europeans. Pacific Islanders had been navigating it in small boats for thousands of years. Cook went twice to Hawaii, which he renamed the Sandwich Islands after the acting Lord of the Admiralty, despite the fact that the islands already had names. The second time he went, in anger about the Hawaiians' apparent theft of a small boat, he tried to kidnap the islanders' king, and he was killed on the beach. Our family didn't have much emotional investment in Cook's qualities. The story came to us late and veiled in some confusion. Was he a many times great grandfather or just a collateral ancestor, a many times great uncle? He was more of a curiosity and an interesting point of trivia. After all, everyone has a famous relative somewhere if they can dig, dig enough. He wasn't held up as an exemplar. Therefore, as my sister and I grew into a thoroughly anti-colonialist attitude, there was no reason for shame. Shame adheres less to people's actual qualities and more to the stories we tell about them. If he had been part of a family story told to illustrate our boldness, our leadership, our importance, then questioning his worth would probably have felt like questioning our own. But he was just a late acquired fact. So for me, while there are some emotional resonances of our familial connection to British imperialism and the European conquest of lands across the Atlantic and the Pacific, it doesn't make me feel responsible for them. It's strange to think how different it would be if James Cook had been the stuff of family stories, an exemplar, a source of pride then we would have had to be very conscious of retelling the story. Shame in a community has the same dynamics. When congregations begin searching for a new minister, they write a congregational record to be posted on the website of the transitions office, just as ministers write their ministerial record for congregations in search to peruse. These congregational records are visible to any UU minister, and I frequently read them. At some point, as I became aware just how tragically widespread was the incidence of ministerial misconduct, I started paying attention to particular records and how they dealt with particular names. The records list, if not every single minister who has ever served there, at least the last several, with a brief note as to why that ministry ended. They also give a history of the congregation's most important events. I know some of the stories of ministerial misconduct. So I have looked up the accounts of congregations that were abused. So far, only once, have I read a congregational record that frankly told the story of this abuse? No wonder most ministers who come into congregations with a history of minister that have a history of ministerial misconduct only learn about their predecessors' actions after they're settled. Of course, most of the congregants don't know either. 
but congregational life is shaped by them just the same. Over time, through hints and allegations, to quote Paul Simon, a picture of Bill Jacobson's ministry here emerged. Or I should say, didn't emerge so much as became slightly less submerged. Bill was the settled parish minister here from 1974 to 1990. I'm not going to tell the story of his misconduct because I don't know it. But many times people have dropped hints. They don't trust their memories or they don't want to talk about it. So hints maybe all we'll ever have. Hints like, he sure liked the ladies or my teenage daughter refused to go to youth group anymore or the people with children all left. I'm struck by how hard it is for me to say all this. My sympathy with the congregations whose records are so blandly devoid of scandal and steaminess grows. So many things conspire to keep the secrets locked up in the vault. I don't really know what happened. It's not my story to tell. It was the 70s. There was a lot of experimentation going on. He's dead. Why rake up the past? He's still alive. Why hurt someone who's trying to go on with his life? The victims should tell their own story. The victims should focus on the future. And running through all these reasons, these excuses for continued silence is shame. Why shame? Why should any of us feel ashamed? Maybe some people are ashamed because they knew and thought they should have done something different. And maybe others are ashamed of not knowing. There is nothing anyone has done that cannot be understood and empathized with as a very human thing to have done or to have not done. Shame doesn't need justification. It is its own justification. The guardian of secrets, the fierce dog that threatens to harm us if we insist on opening that door. As with so many secrets, I wonder, what if at a chosen day and hour, everyone in congregations took their secret out of the vault in which it has been hidden and boldly disregarding shame displayed it? We would see that our own shameful secrets are held by many, many others as well. They would not cease to be our failing. They would cease to be. They would cease to be our failings and instead become visible as a human failing. I hope this would not make us take abuse less seriously, but allow us to tell a different story about it. Maybe we could focus on the harm done and the healing that we have done and can do. Like individuals and families, communities such as congregations continue to be affected by their pasts. For example, to quote the Reverend Deborah Pope Lance, an expert in rebuilding healthy, healthy systems after ministerial misconduct, 
Congregations with a history of misconduct commonly experience unwarranted distrust or suspicion, being misheard or silenced, inexplicable emotional reactions, manipulation, coercion, sabotage, triangulation, undue reverence or dependence. Common organizational patterns include irresolvable conflicts, ambivalent decision-making, secret keeping, distraction, denial and disorder, over-functioning, controlling leadership, closed ineffective communications, and passive membership. Of course, most human communities suffer from one or many of these. Then again, most, well, let's just say all human communities have some kind of abuse of trust in their past. These abuses of trust are complicated by the silence that surrounds them and the shame that ensures the silence remains. A story forms around them, one that is more palatable. The antidote is ultimately to tell a different story. I said the only way a family, a community, an individual gets out from under our burden of secrets is when we stop making them secret. Not coincidentally, that is also the way we overcome shame. Shame about things that shouldn't be shameful, such as having had a child while unmarried. What does that mean except that two people made love? That is nothing to be ashamed of. And in the cases of secrets where someone was actually harmed, such as abuse, uncovering the secrets is how we hold people accountable for what they have done. Ultimately, it is also the way we learn to do better to apologize when we harm someone and to seek to harm people less. As long as the harm is kept secret, neither accountability nor change will happen. What about privacy, you might ask? Well, there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. We don't have to shout every detail of our lives, our families' stories, our community's histories from the peak of mount internet to begin to loosen shame's hold on us. In fact, I think the power of talking about it is only in part a matter of exposing the secret. A large part of the power comes simply from doing something different, changing the rules, changing the script. Joan Aiken, the prolific novelist, wrote a book called The Shadow Guests about one family's burden. In their case, it is literally a curse. Hundreds of years ago, a witch who had been harmed by a member of the Curtis family declared that from, declared that, uh, from then on in every generation of the Curtises, the oldest son would die in battle and his mother would die of grief for him. Cosmo Curtis was raised in Australia, but after his brother and mother wander into the wilderness and can't be found, his father sends him back to England, the ancestral homeland, to live with his aunt for a while. There he is visited by several ghosts, one after the other. It becomes clear that they are members of Cosmo's family from long ago, each facing the battle that lies before them, 
such as a gladiator's duel or a crusade to Jerusalem and the curse that lies upon them. As Cosmo learns about the curse, he begins to consider what he might do to shake it. Should he not have children? Would adopted children perhaps be exempt? In the end, he and his father and aunt speculate and hope that his mother and brother may have broken the curse's hold upon the family. By taking their fate into their own hands, they faced the curse differently than others had done before. They went into the Australian bush of their own accord and died in the way they chose. Maybe after generations of the curse soaking down through generation upon generation, what they did was like laying down a thicker layer. And whereas Cosmo's father had dismissed the pattern and refused to tell his then fiance about it, once she learned about it, she dragged it into the open. Maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe that is enough. Maybe it is enough for all of us. Not a protection from all mistakes and hurts. We are human and we will continue to be hurt by each other and to hurt each other and to seek forgiveness and to give it or decline to and to remake our lives. I think our board recently did something like Cosmo's mother and brother, laid down a new layer, confronted shame in a different way. When a member ignored boundaries that were repeatedly set, the pattern of our communal life would dictate that we permit him to keep doing so, that we avoid conflict by choosing not to acknowledge the conflict already raging that love, compassion, and a belief in everyone's inner goodness required us not to speak of anyone's shortcomings. That the people whose boundaries were violated would drop those boundaries. If they couldn't do that, then they would at least fall silent and if necessary, go away. And that above all, whatever was done would be done out of sight so that the secret could continue to be the secret. That's what our culture, our congregational culture might have suggested that we do. But the board did something else. Very simple, by which I do not mean easy. I mean it was firm and strong and guided by love and truth. They shone a light onto what was happening. They said with their actions and their voice, if any of us violates another's boundaries, as we all sometimes do, they will not be reviled, but will be called back into covenant, into the kind of community we are all seeking. And if anybody does not want to be called back into that covenant, we will let them go. We will ask them to go rather than ask others to hold their secret. If we could have done that back when Bill Jacobson was violating boundaries, 
then perhaps things would have unfolded differently. But the past is full of errors and wrongs. We don't need to be ashamed of them. Shame helps no one. We need only to acknowledge them so that we can hope to go a different way. When we do, we can watch the field behind the plow turn to straight dark rows. We create a new story, a better story, not only for our past, but for our present and future.